Hello, goblins. We want to know more about you, our listeners, so we can try to get some sponsorship to support our network and our creators. We love podcasting and putting out content, but it can be financially strenuous, as we're sure many of you know. Head to cavegoblins.com slash survey and answer some quick questions to be in the draw to win a $20 Amazon gift card. And welcome to this week's episode of Everything Economics. My name is Talia Murdoch, and I would like to begin by acknowledging that we are fortunate to be able to gather on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish people where this podcast is recorded. Today, I'm going to be talking about the polar vortex. What does it tell us about climate change, and what are the implications for the future of the world? I got some feedback from one of my listeners to slow down a bit and let you know when I start and finish different sections, so I hope this one is a bit easier to digest for you. On that note, today I'm going to talk about a few things in relation to the polar vortex and the economy. First, I'll chat about the human and economic impacts this spell of severe cold had on the North Americas. Second, what it tells us about climate change and how this might be felt in the future. And lastly, what needs to be done to mitigate and adapt to climate change. So first, what is the polar vortex? A polar vortex is a large area of low pressure and cold air surrounding both of the Earth's poles. It always exists near the poles, but weakens in summer and strengthens in winter. The polar vortex forms every winter because of the temperature difference between the equator and the poles. In the polar stratosphere, sunlight basically gets cut off during the late fall and early winter, and that makes it really cold while the equator remains quite warm. A jet forms to balance this temperature difference. This jet is what we call the polar vortex or the polar night jet. It flows in a complete circle around the pole, 10 kilometers or a little over six miles above the Earth's surface. Now, historically, the polar vortex has occurred in more or less the same place. This year, though, the polar vortex split and the jet stream moved further south over the Americas, something that is happening more and more frequently. Cold Arctic air that's normally corralled by the jet stream around the pole is then able to go into the middle latitudes on the east coast, in the Midwest, and over Western Europe. Storms which ride along the jet stream move south too. They don't necessarily shift immediately. It can take a few weeks for them to organise themselves to respond and catch up to the jet. Storms that would have hit Canada come and hit New York and Chicago instead. At one point this year, Chicago was colder than Antarctica. So this was basically the result. Below freezing temperatures in the Americas, some places dropping to as low as negative 48 degrees Celsius. If you haven't already done this, search Polar Vortex on Twitter and you will see an abundance of crazy videos and photos. For example, a bubble freezing over in seconds, people going outside briefly with wet hair and heading back in with it frozen stiff. There is the boiling water challenge where you take boiling water and throw it into the air watching it freeze. I do not recommend doing this. Many people had to go to hospital, an impact I won't be getting into today. And people wetting clothing and hanging it outside only to find it completely solid within minutes. Even here in Vancouver, it has been way colder than usual with a bit of snow as the vortex moved west, something that is not usually experienced at this time of year. So now that we have a bit of background on what a polar vortex actually is and where it went this year, let's take a look at what happened in these places that suffered below zero temperatures, noting that the emphasis will be on the US. 
many businesses and schools were forced to close due to the extreme cold. For example, agriculture has been hit hard, with major players like Cargill, who produce grain, and Tyson Foods, American meat giant, having to close their plants and facilities. Farmers alike had to work effortlessly to look after their animals and prevent frostbite, with key challenges around actual transport, feed, and simply hydrating animals as water was freezing so easily. In terms of crops, it is too early to tell what longer-term damage might have been done. Given that the Midwest feeds such a large part of America and the world for that matter, global food supplies are potentially at risk, as more Arctic weather is expected to come to the region. Again, we won't really know what the full impacts are until sometime in the spring as the weather begins to warm. In some parts of the US, like Fayette County and Jefferson County in Kentucky, all schools were closed and all after-school activities were cancelled because of the dangerously cold temperatures and wind chill. At least 4,500 flights in the Midwest and surrounding areas were cancelled. Slick road conditions saw mail delivery services close in 11 different states. And in Chicago, the Lincoln Park Zoo, Art Institute and Field Museum were all shut down during this period. Only the bravest of souls ventured outside, and not before covering every inch of skin to avoid the previously mentioned quick onset of frostbite. Chicago also, being one of the hardest hit cities, actually deployed buses as mobile warming centres for those who weren't able to find warmth indoors. A massive impact was definitely made on the homeless population. Every year, without drastic weather conditions, about 700 homeless people die in the US due to hypothermia. So it is obvious that this threat increases with the polar vortex moving south. In Chicago, six shelters were open for 24 hours a day, as well as the buses being used for warming and public buildings being opened. Collaborative efforts between the Department of Family and Support Services, the Chicago Police Department and the Chicago Transit Authority, among other agencies, seem to be quite effective this year. And the city even conducted outreach to ensure the safety of those who weren't seeking help on their own. There are still huge problems with shelters, though. A lot of people don't want to go to them because of bedbugs, because of theft, and because of difficulty sleeping, particularly when they are stretched so thin, so many people are left to begging to afford motel rooms to be in even during the day. And once the weather clears up, the sense of urgency to help homeless people goes away, too, and they must return to the streets. This is a deeper conversation for another time, but this extreme cold highlights how much good and wrong is done to people in need. So we can see that the breadth of people affected by the polar vortex is large. Rich or poor, the impacts were felt and felt hard. Much of the closures and plane cancellations, things like that, were to do with the heavy toll the freezing cold had on infrastructure, which I'm going to talk a little about now. For example, fuel lines at O'Hare Airport in Chicago completely froze, while commuter trains that rely on electricity were shut down as the metal wires that powered them contracted and threw off connections. Similarly, electric vehicles lost range in the cold weather as the chemical reactions within their batteries don't happen as easily when it is cold. More on transport, 10 diesel train lines in the metro network kept running, but crews had to heat vital switches with gas flames and watch for rails that were cracked or broken. When steel rails break or crack, trains are automatically halted until they are diverted or the section of rail is repaired, further impacting the level of delays and lack of mobility. On the home front, over 50,000 people were without electricity after high winds caused tree branches to fall on power lines. On top of this, high heating demand tripped about 5,000 circuits in Indiana. More than 24 water mains froze in Detroit. 
Customers had to be quickly connected to other mains so they could still access water in their home, which in this context is probably also a significant source of warmth. I found this interesting too. Most of the mains in Detroit were installed in the first half of the 20th century and are below the frost line underground, but still managed to freeze in this weather. The city is currently repairing their pipe systems as they have frozen in the past, and as they freeze and thaw, freeze and thaw, they become more brittle and are more susceptible to cracking completely. In the same way, concrete and asphalt roads crack with the result being huge potholes, most of which likely won't be identified until the snow melts. The silver lining to this, I guess, is there will be plenty of road maintenance work available in the spring and summertime. So I've just talked about a variety of ways in which people and infrastructure were affected by the freezing temperatures brought about by the polar vortex. Now I'm going to discuss how this is expected to have affected the economy. It is widely accepted that the US economy shrinks in the winter, with or without a polar vortex. Since 2002, US gross domestic product has dropped by about 13% annually on average between October and March, but this fall is made up for in the warmer months. Economists and analysts factor this into the equation when calculating and forecasting economic growth over a whole year. During the winter, people just don't go out as much. You personally probably know that you are more likely to stay in and snuggle up under a blanket to watch a great show or read a book. So when most of the country is doing this, yeah, it makes sense that the economy shrinks. It just happens everywhere, so it isn't exactly a problem. A polar vortex, however, will influence the fall in GDP more. In 2014, for example, despite a booming domestic economy, and even with the adjustment I just mentioned for shrinkage in winter times, GDP shrank by 1% in the first quarter of that year. The heaviest hit industries that led to this decline were motor vehicle sales, employment, and construction. Now, this accounts for about 40% of the US population and economy, so it is not surprising that their decline impacted overall GDP so much. It is currently too early to know how the economy has exactly been affected by this year's polar vortex, much like it is too early to know how agriculture has been hit. The Federal Reserve Bank currently estimates this quarter's GDP to be 2.2%, which is fine growth, but this model has not been updated since January 18. We won't get accurate data on this until March. But in saying that, AccuWeather, for example, estimate the total cost to the US economy at $14 billion. Much of this will be recouped over the warmer months, but a permanent net loss of $5 billion is still forecast. But given that the US economy is worth $17 trillion, this loss is pennies, and the damage may be short-lived for the economy as a whole in the longer term. So that is how the economy is expected to be impacted in terms of dollars and GDP. It doesn't seem so significant, but these weather events are becoming more and more frequent. I'm now going to talk about how the increased frequency is directly linked to climate change and then how we as a society can both mitigate and adapt. Now, we know that burning fossil fuels has increased the amount of carbon dioxide released into the atmosphere, among many other things, of course. I'm not here to convince you that climate change exists and that it is a result of human activity. We know this to be true. I'm here to tell you about how it weakens the polar vortex, sending it south, but please know I'm not a scientist. Greenhouse gas emissions from human activities have warmed the globe by about 1 degree Celsius over the past 50 years. However, the Arctic has warmed more than twice as much as this. 
Amplified Arctic warming is due mainly to dramatic melting of ice and snow in recent decades, which exposes darker ocean and land surfaces that absorb a lot more of the sun's heat. Now, because of this rapid warming in the Arctic region, the difference in the temperature between the equator and the North Pole has basically disappeared. Now, the greater the temperature difference is, the stronger the vortex is, meaning that it is less likely to split and see the cold air escape south. While this is backed by 10 years of data, some scientists believe long-term variations in sea surface temperatures and changes in the tropics might play bigger roles. I for one believe the science is telling us that this is still a phenomenon linked to human-induced climate change. So knowing that this is happening, and knowing also that some studies point to this happening more frequently and for longer periods of time, what are some of the ways the world can mitigate and adapt to climate change? By now, we have all come across the latest UN report on climate change and know that we have about a decade to drastically change our ways or enter into a new age. Honestly, the way world leadership is going, this is going to be incredibly challenging, which is why I'm including adapting in this piece. I don't really believe we can reverse the damage that has been done. Now, for this section, I'm just going to mention a few carbon reduction policies that have been proven to work and not go into huge detail. I will do a more detailed episode about these in a few episodes time. So now let's look at mitigation. How do we actually get carbon emissions down? The two main ways a country can do this is via a carbon tax or an emissions trading scheme. They both have the same outcome in a simple economy. It's just that the former is a tax imposed by government, while the latter is left to the market. They each have pros and cons, and really, it doesn't matter which policy is implemented at this point, just that one of them actually is. A carbon tax is, as its name suggests, just a tax on carbon. By pricing carbon, a government is considering all of the negative externalities caused by carbon emissions and forcing companies and individuals to factor this into the price of goods and services. Carbon prices are transparent, can be very simple, and have proven to reduce emissions in every country that has adopted one in the past decade. By comparison, an emissions trading scheme, also very effective, sets the amount of carbon that can be released into the atmosphere. Companies can then trade and sell permits between each other, essentially buying the right to emit. Over time, the price of a permit should fall as companies adapt their processes to emit less. The emissions trading scheme in Europe has been very effective in lowering emissions. So they are really the main tools we have at hand to manage the level of emissions being released on a daily basis. As I mentioned, I will do a more detailed episode about this and the actual experiences had in countries that adopted either model. Given the most recent UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, we as a world are pretty short on time to actually implement these tools as they are often politically contentious. This latest report says we have about a decade or so until two degrees of warming is reached. And this is the cynic in me talking. I honestly can't see the necessary changes happening in that time. So now we need to look at how to adapt. How do we make sure we can handle more polar vortexes, among other impacts? Humanity has been adapting to all kinds of conditions, particularly climate conditions, since the beginning of time. We are pretty good at it, and societies will continue to do so, in response to potential negative impacts of climate change as well. We will learn to live in a new age, but we need to be proactive and plan for disaster. For starters, climate policy should not be considered or written on its own. 
rather in conjunction with all developmental policy. Whether development is planning a new suburb in a wealthy city or improving access to clean water in underdeveloped countries, this needs to be done with climate change in mind. I guess it makes more sense to say that development and all other policy can no longer be written and implemented without considering climate change. Now, when we are considering adaptation policy, it is critical that we do start with the poorest countries as they are the most vulnerable to climate change. I've said this before on other episodes, Mother Nature doesn't care how much wealth you have and how ready for her you may be. Even if global temperature rise is kept to below 2 degrees, many ecosystems and communities will face severe negative impacts. Some will be felt more immediately, such as increased and more severe climatic hazards like flood, drought and hurricanes, while others will be felt over the longer term, like increased salinity of water, which makes it worse for drinking and for irrigation, and eventually physical sea level rise. Currently, the global disaster management community is focused on how to react to climatic disaster after they occur. This is obviously not bad, but more thought must be put into how to prepare for disaster to see that as little adverse impacts are felt as possible. More emphasis should be placed on learning how to best evacuate communities when we know severe weather events are coming, how to build more resistant buildings, how to secure a food supply. Something we also really need to do is get used to the idea that we are going to need to move people. Historically, a lot of disaster management has emphasised being able to stay in the same location and continue living a normal life, but this is no longer a realistic and effective model. Countries who will be more protected from climate change, those being the wealthier ones, need to put into place policies and procedures that will efficiently deal with an increased number of climate migrants and refugees. I mean, the alternative is just letting people die. Moreover, policymakers need to be well connected with the scientific community. Climate science too needs to be embedded into all school curriculums, as having a basic climate science literacy will become more and more essential to everyday life. Mitigation needs to happen, carbon emissions need to be reduced, but I have for the most part accepted that adaptation is what will ensure humanity continues to exist and thrive through increased severe weather events, much like a polar vortex. So thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. On a personal level, the polar vortex has brought some pretty fun snow to the mountains I snowboard on and also to the city I live in. So I'm enjoying that at least. You can follow the show on Twitter at Every Economics or find the whole network at Cave Goblins across all social media platforms. As mentioned at the top, please don't forget to fill out our survey, cavegoblins.com survey and go in the draw to win a $20 Amazon gift card. We have some new content that you can get by becoming a Patreon subscriber as well. That's patreon.com slash cavegoblins. Take a look at all of our shows. They're great. Our creators are amazing. Thank you again for listening. Be kind to each other. I am Talia Murdoch, and this has been Everything Economics. Come aboard and bring along all your hopes and dreams because we're taking you on a Patreon-exclusive journey through the epic of One Piece. That's right. We'll be tackling the almost 1,000-episode anime One Piece, 10 episodes at a time. Compass left behind, it'll only slow us down. 
We're not allowed to take notes or research anything during this project, so let's see where the wind takes us. Catch our new podcast, 1,000 Pieces, only on patreon.com slash cavegoblins. There's always room for you if you want to be our friend. We are, we are the crew. We are. This is a Cave Goblin podcast. For other podcasts like this, visit cavegoblins.com. We hope you have enjoyed this program.